I'm Helen Lowe, and this is Naked Conversations, Women Uninterrupted, a series of dialogues I'm sharing with a soul friend and fellow life learner, Lisa Fitzhugh, because we believe that relating to self and other with honesty and vulnerability unlocks the transformational potential needed in a world poised for collapse. While some might challenge the notion that conversation is a catalyst for real change, we trust this most humble of actions is precisely what's needed to dismantle what doesn't work and cultivate a more inclusive and sustainable way of being. Whoever you are, we're honored to have you in the conversation. Good morning. Good morning. How are you this morning? I, I am feeling a little weird today, Lisa. <laughs> How are you? <laughs> I am also feeling weird. I had a series of bizarre dreams that um, left me much to think about. And that always uh, tends to put the day in a different perspective. A bit of um, more curiosity about how much is under the surface that I may not be paying attention to. So you have a company, an organization called Creative Ground. Uh, My umbrella is Creative Catalyst. And it seems you're a kindred spirit in your tolerance for uncertainty. I recognize in you one who can handle the discomfort of not knowing more than many. And that's not to compare good or bad, but it is to say that I recognize that this, this tolerance for uncertainty is necessary for creativity, for stepping outside of an old paradigm about the way things have been done, should be done, and into a new paradigm, creating something new in the world, creating change or seeing from a new perspective. Um, Neuroscientists talk about how our brains are actually wired for certainty, like that's a survival mechanism, you know, and so we create uh, all these historic assumptions about what's safe and what's not, but then Um, We kind of live ourselves into a bit of a box and then evolution will come along and shake things up, you know, or something will come to shake things up uh, and we are required um, to step into uncertainty, whether we want to or not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Something new happens. So it seems to me that maybe we could have a conversation today about how we see that playing out in our own lives and, um, kind of, and, and the bigger theater of the world. Yeah, I've um, noticed that the big traumas in my life, um, like when I, when I got breast cancer when I was 30 and I had a um, sort of a disastrous end to a, to a, to a relationship when I was 40, um, and when I say disastrous, it just was, it was way more painful than it needed to be. These moments, they've like burned all my basic assumptions to the ground. All of the things that I thought were true about me and my life. And, um, and I noticed that that was one way to challenge assumptions it was to let life happen and blow them up basically <laughs> from circumstance or, and <laughs> to um, really understand that the assumptions that we carry shape the world that we see and that we make and that we live into. And the more, the fewer assumptions we have about the world, the bigger the world is, the more it allows for much more seeing. Because every time I'd have a major trauma, the assumptions would get blown up that we're holding that story in place. 
as I stepped out past it, I could see that there was a much bigger world there to live into. So there's an interesting practice that I realized was possible for myself, which was, wait a minute, instead of waiting <laughs> for the world to collapse in my lap, um, how about just noticing that every assumption I'm walking around with may or may not be true. And if I hold less lightly to them, um, they, they don't have to have such rigid, they don't have to create such a rigid um, set of sort of parameters about my life and that life gets much more expansive and thus way more creative. So may I ask you, if you would double back to what you said and just share some examples, like what, what were some of the assumptions or the self-constraints that breast cancer made visible yeah. for you? What, what, what did you bump up against? Yeah. I mean, the biggest assumption that I carried was that I would live, I would live forever. I mean, obviously we know, we know that's not true. But I was 31 and I had some hubris in thinking that this life would be quite endless. So breast cancer was the fastest reminder um, of, no, 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 it turns out you die. What do you want to do with your life? That was the big one. Um, another one was an assumption that I held that I had to do a job that, and be involved in a career that um, the system valued and that I would be well compensated for, and I would appear to others as successful and in control. Like it really ran me to, because um, I worked in politics and I had a job in politics that felt very stable and, and had long, a long map of continuity. So I thought, and, that, and the assumption that, that living that kind of life with lots of certainty around my job would make me happy. Um, would bring me joy. These are assumptions that turned out not to be true. I was quite miserable working in the political realm and there was something else that my soul wanted to do that was more joyful. So in that breast cancer story, almost every assumption about who I thought I was and what would be important to making a life in terms of my you know, relevance, in terms of the people I worked with, all of those assumptions about all of that collapsed um, kind of in one fell swoop in the face of looking squarely in the eye of the possibility of leaving this planet sooner rather than later. Wow. I absolutely needed that kind of wake up call to shake up those assumptions. And I remember a, a, a friend came to me about a year later and said, I know this sounds weird, but I sort of wish I too could get breast cancer because you seem to have liberated yourself from a way of living. And I don't know how to do that. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Wow. And like to, for someone to see that I had moved past a whole set of assumptions about what my life was going to be. And it appeared from them perspective that I was living in a way more joyful place and they couldn't see their way to doing that without facing their own mortality. This feels like a really important jumping off point because I want to pull back the lens a little bit to say, I think that this is where we are as a country, as a planet, you know, as a people, as a species, um, that we haven't seen our way to pry ourselves loose from what has seemed um, stable, um, reliable, even though increasingly painful, um, we haven't seen our way to changing it, except perhaps on the margins a bit here and there. And uh, it seems like things are needing to collapse 
um, to create the necessity for us to step outside of that box. So, so it's like the illness, like the cancer and the individual, we're kind of doing this collectively. Um, there's a, a man I know who, um, I, I actually, I don't, I, I don't, he was a, he was a fleeting acquaintance that I met in a workshop and it was like a spiritual workshop. And we broke into, this is um, right, right after um, the Trump election. And um, he kind of let me know that he had voted for Trump. And it was an unusual place to find somebody who had voted for Trump, or at least one would think so on the outside. And he just said somebody encouraged him to consider who would bring about the most change. And he decided that given the choices, um, Trump would certainly bring down, bring down the most change. Um, doesn't necessarily mean it's positive change, but it's like the cancer brought change in you that we wouldn't think was positive change, right? Here it is threatening your life, and yet something miraculous happened in you. Yeah, and I actually believe that the cancer was a profound gift, you know, so I'm always in extreme gratitude for that cancer, as I have been for every other deeply traumatic event that's happened in my life. It's, um, it's supported a kind of personal evolution that is so much more liberating than, than the stories that held me before that event and had me living a life not true to um, a quality of being that's so much more essential and so much more of, of, of my truest joy. And it's, there's no certainty in it. There's no, in fact, the further along we go on this road to um, live with fewer and fewer fixed assumptions, the more uncertainty um, presents itself in any number of forms. Um, but you can see from this perspective, I can see from this perspective, is the, the illusion of certainty. It's completely a self-made rationalization. It's not real. There's no such thing. And certainty feels real to so many people. You can feel them grasping at sort of they have a retirement account or you can see that that, you know, job is giving them that sense of stability or having this partner that they've committed to and now they're married and the certainty of that. And I, um, I, I do think that if we, if we believe to, if we're stuck in believing that certainty, it can be achieved ever. We, we have to learn the universe evolution wants us to learn that it is an illusion and how else can we learn that it's illusion except for it to come crashing down around us to see that. So I'm, I, I go, I'm going back to what you just said about we're at a time where does, does most of our assumptions and structures that we've had in place that supposedly give us a sense of security have to collapse so that we can, um, really understand that that how much of an illusion that is yeah yeah i don't i don't know what it was <clears throat> in my life what has supported my wiring to be with uncertainty um more than most people i know um because there's many people that have lived with the kinds of uncertainty that I have. Mine haven't been particularly exceptional, but one thing is that my, my very nature of wanting to learn and wanting to try new things um, has been a push for me to always go because trying anything new is inherently uncertain. And so there has been some kind of, urging some pushing that I can't quite 
put my finger on. It feels like the soul urge, you know, as I, the language I can put on it today. So my career has been like one uncertainty after another. I mean, it's just full of um, explorations and things, being a freelancer, being a creative, being in Los Angeles and working, you know, project to project, film to film or show to show or however it went. And there's no certainty in that. So I kind of grew up in that that world. But one thing that, you know, the few full-time jobs that I had um, created this illusion of security, but I always kind of felt the trap that they were for me. Um, It felt like I was selling something of myself to get a level of perceived security. Totally. Yes. Wow. (laughs) So resonate with that statement. And, yes. and, and some for some people that feels like a really fair trade-off, you know, and I understand like mm-hmm. um, my friends who have children, you know, that mm-hmm. feels like a really yeah. reasonable trade-off to them to yes. sell a certain something of their sense of creativity or freedom or whatever to have some, some sense of security. But what, what really was a wake-up call for me was – uh, you know, it was the big time of startups, um, internet startups and the year 2000. And I moved to Seattle and came to work for a startup. And um, we were, we had something that was cool and um, we were on the cutting edge of the future of where, where um, storytelling was going to go and the internet. And I felt so secure and I bought a house for the first time and, um, when I left that company uh, and went out on my own, because that was the thing that I really was good at doing, um, I discovered uh, from one of the owners that there were times when payroll was written from their personal bank accounts, right? Like they were writing payroll checks, writing checks. <laughs> To the company to cover payroll. And I had been so naive, right? And I was like, oh, wow, like it was way less certain than I thought. I just want to emphasize that piece that you said. I mean, in the jobs that I've had that were secure, that were, had, an, had, a, had a weekly, you know, a biweekly paycheck and a boss that I reported to and, and a sense that I could stay in that job if I wanted to for a while or, or move in the company, um, there was always a sense that I was having to, there were a whole bunch of norms and assumptions within the, the structure of that organization, but also within the structure overall of a, of a larger system that oftentimes gave me, uh, had, I had allergic reactions to. I would feel bodily restrictions in remembering that I was needing to abide by their norms, their rules, and, and their terms of engagement. And um, so often those terms of engagement were defined by the story of patriarchy, that the way that power is organized. And it never felt fair or inclusive, or whole. It always felt like more of a zero-sum game. And um, so both of us, you know, as we're talking about this, I'm having this realization that both of us, for different reasons, but have um, chosen more often than not, not to um, settle for those terms. Um, And we've come to a place in our lives right now, I've come to a place in my life right now where, in fact, I want to really make sure I live by my own terms of engagement. I understand what my own terms of engagement are and, um, and honor those. 
every, in every relationship, whether it's a work relationship or a personal relationship. And um, that is hard in the current system where, of control, where I can feel that the system itself is, is always reminding us, no, 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 we set the terms of engagement. And those terms of engagement, um, I believe, I can feel, um, are, are really uncomfortable, increasingly uncomfortable for, the, for humans as, as a species. I do feel people's discomfort with it. But we're so entrained to want certainty and security that the trade-off seems pretty enormous as a society to do something yeah. different. I, I can't help but wonder, you know, if, if our level of self-medication, you know, prescribed or not, um, is, is um, trying to conform to a kind of insanity that we've, kind of collectively created. We've kind of built ourselves into this box. We've removed ourselves from the natural world. We've removed ourselves from our <clears throat> instincts, our internal knowing. Um, we've created a sense of security that requires we stay disconnected, you know, and so is, is you know, kind of medicating ourselves, checking out um, a way of coping with a world that's um, increasingly infringing on our innate creativity, our innate spontaneity, our innate knowing and freedom and sovereignty. Um, you know, and I can hear, I can hear the voice of other people saying, well, we need rules, you know, we need things to abide by. And it's, it's tricky because there's, there's a balance, right? Like I remember my father, when I was a very small child, my dad was a bit of a rebel and, um, he was talking to me about the absurdity of stoplights and how stoplight in, um, this is, you know, my adult memory of a childhood conversation, but the gist of it was something like stoplights um, are enforcing a, like an abdication of self-responsibility, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and that because we have these stoplights, um, we aren't taking, we aren't learning to, or remembering to take into account what we're actually seeing, like cars coming or, you know, pedestrians or whatever. We're just trained on the light um, and that the light tells us to stop or go rather than following <laughs> this other, these other forms of knowing and participating in the world. And it, I was like, my young mind was like, dad, people are really going to kill each other. You're crazy. You know, of course we need stoplights. Oh, he's so right on. I mean, he's really, he really, and it, and it, and having spent, you know, the last eight years deep inside government bureaucracies, I can say with absolute certainty that the layers and layers of rules and policies and protocols and guidelines that trap our government and literally restrict it like some giant with ropes placed over top of it. Um, ensures that people abdicate their responsibility and they stop thinking and they start operating on autopilot and they, they unlearn or they never get a chance to learn and practice the moment-to-moment -moment skills of making good choices um, about their venture and about each other. It's as if they can just rely on this whole host of, of, of rules that's been created. Um, and it's a, there's a total abdication of personal responsibility, except in rare circumstances. And, and it seems to me that, you know, we think it's necessary and we think it's insane to, to consider a world without things like stoplights. Really, and that's kind of just an extreme example, but it's a simple, concrete example. But works for me. Yeah, but we we only think it's insane not to have those things because we aren't. We're still thinking inside this box that people would would hurt each other without the rules, or you know, people would take advantage. And so, so it's like maybe instead of 
trying to find a rule to pin down every uncertainty, we could actually put our energy of how can we teach ourselves, our children, our, as a culture, how can we become a culture of learning how to be self-responsible, learning how to tune in to others, learning how to take in the situation and use our intuitive um, senses and our, 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 our tactile senses to respond to the world in deeply compassionate, sensitive, self-responsible ways that take into account ourselves and, and the well-being of others. Like if we did that training, we wouldn't need perhaps so many dang rules. And some would say, listening to this conversation, you know, how in the world, Lisa and Helen, can you imagine making that happen in a world of 8 billion people or 7 billion people, whatever we are, you know, and this comes to back to, well, what is it we're doing? So, so I'm, I don't believe there's any Uber solution ever at this point. It's not a Uber solution. The solutions are inherent in the um, minute interactions between people and in small groups, um, which is one of the reasons we're talking and we're valuing this conversation and making it you know, something we want to share with others is that there's something about what we can learn about our very close interactions with each other in to to deepen our trust in living together with far less certainty and much more improvisational um, willingness that we can only do in small, you know, settings um, at this point and versus imagining that somehow, you know, because I don't think either of us, one of us could imagine a scenario where all of a sudden we just removed all the stoplights. Okay, everyone just learn it. Learn <laughs> right, how to, no. <laughs> because then you have total chaos. Right. But what if, Helen, we have to descend into that much chaos mm -hmm. so that we're forced to reimagine ourselves creating from a blank canvas without all of those rules and starting from that newer place with a higher level of consciousness to do it differently. Because I think we're too attached to the idea of all of these rules making our lives easier. Yeah. Amen. So I was with a group recently and we were exploring this topic. I invited us to consider this topic of uncertainty and, and everyone's level of comfort with uncertainty in which areas, you know, and where, where are you comfortable with a certain level of not knowing insecurity and where is, do you have very little tolerance for that? Um, Cause my sense is that we are being asked to stretch our capacity um, as individuals and a collective, as we've been saying, to greater and greater uncertainty, greater and greater not knowing, because it's coming. It's here, it's coming our way. Mm -hmm. And if we don't build up our capacity for resilience, mm -hmm. um, our threshold for experiencing trauma is going to be a lot lower. Mm -hmm. And our susceptibility to uh, leaders who want to convince us mm -hmm. that they have certainty mm -hmm. or they can provide us certainty. Right. And they, uh, um, but like, we're going to become a lot more susceptible to, um, to that kind of power over if we don't learn how to be more flexible and self-responsible. Authoritarian regimes that, that are, you know, are become more attractive. Oh yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. We can see it all over the world. Right. So we're out of our deep need for certainty, which is again, an illusion. We pull in 
more illusions, which is people who, who give us some sense that we could have security. For instance, that we could create a border wall and people right. keep people out. Right. That there are such things as walls that could work uh, mm-hmm. to limit what is deeply interdependent and completely um, all connected. That, that there are so many political promises being made right now that are fallacies, that are illusions about how the state can take care of us and what's promised and how we can, what, how we can be protected by a variety of things that um, the further along we go in, in, in a belief in those things that are not true fundamentally, the more intense will need to be the, um, the challenge to those assumptions for us to live, to really live more honestly. Um, That's what seems frightening to me right now is to not, when I'm not living honestly, when I'm not really admitting to myself what's more true about my interdependence with other people or um, what's more true about the tenderness of my heart when I try to protect it and pretend it doesn't get hurt or um, what's, what's more true about this profound uncertainty of the universe and of the creative potential of the universe. Um, I notice that small events will happen to quickly assert the truth in my life. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. (laughs) And they, these events don't let me stay in denial very long at all. And I find it very invigorating to stay awake to that. Um, I find it very invigorating to stay awake to that and responsive to that versus trying to sweep it under the rug. Yeah. You know, this, this slogan that so many people got behind of make America great again is, um, such a clear example of um, fear of change, right? It's wanting to go back to some, and then we can say, well, for lots of people, America wasn't ever so great, (laughs) you know? Um, But for, let's say, those who thought it was, you know, um, this notion of looking back to the past and wanting to grab what is certain, that's exactly what the brain Um, what neuroscience is showing us is that the brain does. It says, oh, that was certain, so let's go back to it. Um, But we can't. I mean, we've got technologies are changing. You know, we can't, no no amount of um, political maneuvering is going to bring back um, an industry that's gone, that's dead, you know, that we're growing beyond. And, And so it feels like resilience is is this very creative capacity to get invigorated, as you're saying, to actually get excited about the big questions. And yes, there's a lot of grief in all the change that's happening. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of grief in um, what we're losing or even the illusions of what we're losing. And I think we need to have a certain discipline to remind ourselves not to turn away from it and overlook and be Pollyanna, but to have that, that beginner's mind, that creative mind of what's calling us forward? What could be better? What could be great? You know, what could make America great, not again, but what could make us great in the future? What could make us more cohesive, stronger, resilient, creative, collaborative, generative, kind? <laughs> um, I mean, the things that I think most people want, but we, we look to the future and we get afraid because it's unknown, but what is it? So let's, can we just circle back to this? What 
is it that we know in our lives that makes innovation or creativity work? Like, how do you help people who are looking to change cultures? What are the things, what are the shifts that in, in your experience enable people to take a more creative approach about what, what's feeling uncertain rather than fall victim to their own fears? I think it has to do with um, feeling the excitement of novelty that is only possible when we give up control of an outcome. So often I see clients struggling to control the outcome. I mean, all the time. They control the outcome through how they set agendas, how they um, synchronize and plan through the chess game constantly. When I do this, they'll do that. Then this is going to happen. I mean, that is so, that's the norm. Mm -hmm. And the only way I've seen for people to do anything differently is for them to have an experience of surrendering control (laughs) and going into a meeting and maybe putting a very light agenda, but not driving to an outcome and letting themselves have the experience of what happens and what does emerge from that kind of surrender. And what do they notice about how they're getting uncomfortable and why they're getting uncomfortable and what's possible and how they have to then share power and all of the pieces. But if they can have an experience that that gets them in touch with that possibility of what's possible when we surrender control to a collective that wants to, a collective intelligence that knows exact, I mean, that has all the wisdom and all the intelligence needed for, for any kind of problem solving. We just can't see it. And then they have this big insights or something novel really emerges or somebody speaks they've never heard speak and it transforms what they think of that person. So true novelty occurs. Then their brain can start to allow or consider the positive benefits or the, just the benefits or the positive aspects of surrender and control. That's the only way I know of for that to start to, uh, to, for that to get some room in these spaces that are so used to being a minutely planned, like at every level things are planned out. That's great. Yeah. I'm remembering a flood of memories of working with clients in storytelling. So when I was doing uh, storytelling full-time for organizational clients, I would come in and we would look at something that they were wanting to tell a story around. And that level of wanting to control it. They wanted to know everything. They'd say, well, exactly what are you going to give us? And exactly what is it going to be? And I would say, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I can't I can tell you what it's going to be because we're going to create it. <laughs> we're going to see what it wants to be. And I realized that so much, like in hindsight, I can appreciate that so much of what I was, quote, selling was me and my confidence in the creative process because these people kind of, you know, without exception, or didn't consider themselves to be creative people. You know, they considered themselves to be whatever it was that they were, but it wasn't creative. And so I was the creative and they just couldn't imagine how this was going to go. And so they would have to put their faith in me mm. uh, because I had tolerance mm. um, for the creative process. And every phase of a project would would reach a point where everybody thought it was lost kind of thing it would be this terrible point where everything just sucked right yeah and and i just i had spent i've spent so many years doing that right that i understand that that happens always and you get past the this sucks and suddenly you get excited again um and it's kind of without exception and you don't know where you're going to go and it just everything you tried isn't working and you need a solution and you don't know where it's going to come from and if you can relax and not push and wait 
And I, I would often end meetings saying, okay, well, we don't know what the answer is now. Let me just take it back and, and be with it. And so I could sit with the uncertainty and bring something fresh and then bring it back to the, to the group. And then they could get excited again. Oh, we can, we can move through a problem. And so anyway, what I realized in the course of storytelling, um, what I was really doing with people was helping them to bridge their discomfort in the unknown that is the creative process. And we can apply it to storytelling. But I, I saw in my work, it was, I could apply it to everything. Question. How hard, though, how, isn't it a lot for you to have to carry all of the confidence with uncertainty? Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah. We'll talk and about that. How, how, how is it, what, what, <laughs> what did it require? Well, it, it required, it required being able to, to be with everybody's projections of doubt. Yeah. <clears throat> so... Um, it took a lot of, uh, confidence in the process that, uh, people wanted to make it about me, but that was, if it was about me, I would have broken. <laughs> um, I kind of knew it was a creative process. Um, but some days where I could, I could get confused and thought it was about me and felt tremendous amounts of pressure, um, and took that on, and it's exhausting. I, I think that's probably what burns politicians out, right? I mean, everybody, you have to take everybody's projections. Um, they hate you, they love you, they think that you're the savior, you're gonna figure it out, and they abdicate responsibility. Um, it's certainly, now just talking about it, I'm appreciating that uh, maybe that's one of the things that made me need to get out of it. Um, to some degree that I, uh, I'm now working with people on a smaller scale and it's supporting, I can more directly talk about what's going on, right? And those, those engagements with clients that weren't, they weren't there. I wasn't there um, to help them work through the uncertainty and the change process, right? I was there to help them tell a story, but, but what I was doing was, was that, yeah. right. And, and that, to me, is what real leadership could be. I think leadership up until now has been, it's so hard in a leadership position to not get caught in those projections and want to assure the people around you that it's going to be okay because you've got this and you, and you can hold this or you can tolerate all that ambiguity and you're you know, capable of doing all that. And, um, I, or even to assure them that things are going to be okay, mm -hmm. is a flaw in the current leadership design, the archetypal leadership, that, that leadership going forward is going to be all of us stepping into our own deep knowing and knowing that we as individuals are going to be okay. And I'm going to trust you, Helen, more when I know you're going to hold your own integrity for yourself about what you need and, you know, your ability to deal with those projections and all of the uncertainty. But I don't want you as my leader to promise me, even though everything in my body would love you as a leader to promise me that things were going to be okay and you're going to take care of things for us. That's such a nice thing to have, but it's what we have gotten addicted to in patriarchy that we want someone the father or the mother but often the father in the old story to assure us that we were safe and it's a it's a story that we cannot tell each other anymore in leadership it's a um it's a lie well, and you bring up an important point, Lisa, because it is necessary for healthy child development, we've discovered, right, to have a certain level of 
stability and security from our caregivers and to yes. not be bound up in the adult problems. And, you know, we do much better. Children thrive when adults solve the problems, but I think we've, we've perhaps now had so many countless generations where the, maybe the adults were, were not resourced enough to, to do that, you know, that, um, that we didn't get that as kids and we're looking for that as adults. You know, we haven't learned fully, I think, um, to take that self-responsibility. We keep abdicating as if we're children. And I want to honor that if we didn't get that as children, um, there's some part of us that gets activated, that, that child part gets activated, that fear can be tremendous. So I understand the impulse to look for that. Um, Completely. Yeah. The strong hand of the father, you know, the, the sh- assuredness of the mother. Um, but, but we've got to grow up and take responsibility if we want, if, if, if we want real change, if we want our freedom, you know, as I think if our freedom, I think our freedom, because I mean, change is, uh, it's in, it's inherent in the design of the cosmos. It's what it's like you and I are just a process. We're not a thing. True. And, in many ways. And um, I think we, what we are invited to consider is that we could actually enjoy change. We could find change enlivening and invigorating um, versus having it always be a trauma or painful. We really do fearful or fearful and we constrict around it. And, um, and, you know, we're asking a lot of, of people to consider doing this. I get that so often I feel like sometimes when I say these things, I'm asking a lot of people around me to open up to the possibility of seeing huge loss as an invitation. Yeah. Um, and yet every experience I've ever had in my life has shown me that when I lean in towards loss as an invitation, my life gets so rich and expanded from that. And it's never the same. It's entirely new sometimes. And it's very creative. And there's nothing I can say that would make that choice, you know, to make that choice any easier. But I, but I, I do... I do try to remind people that it comes from a place of having experienced it. There's just, I have one data point, you know, which is myself and my life. And, um, our one point of reference for many data points. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's yeah. what I'm learning about you and myself is yeah. that we have lots and lots of data points that say that change can be invigorating, that change is a is stepping into the unknown that change brings is enlivening and brings about creative possibilities that weren't possible before that change before it, when we lived in the certain and before a whole set of assumptions literally died there was no way of appreciating what was possible outside of those bounds that the assumptions made. So it's why I think as our collective, we're having such a hard time letting a bunch of assumptions go. The agreements we have with each other as a society is because we have no way of knowing what's on the other side. We just know that, that, that it's a death is required in a way of a lot of these old ideas. Um, and I think, Helen, when I think about the conversation that we're seeking to have with each other is pointing to a new way of relating, um, modeling it, experimenting with it, a new way of relating that is moving past a lot of the old assumptions. The very nature of these conversations, we call them naked conversations, the very nature of them is 
all we have is that loose agenda like you suggested of the people you work with, you know, and we don't know where they're going. We don't have an end point in mind other than just to feel complete for this time period. We don't know what complete will feel like or look like before we get there. Like just having these conversations is an exercise in stepping into the unknown. Right. So, but maybe in some small way, some modest way, maybe they're an invitation for those who choose to listen to take these small steps to unhook themselves from the normal ways of being, to slow down, to get a little more contemplative, a little more reflective, um, and take more responsibility for where we find ourselves or where they find them. So we all need to kind of take stock, but we do this together. We do this in good company. So find good company to slow down and consider how we're actually living so that maybe we build some resilience, some trust, some courage to step out and take small steps to live a bit differently into this unknown, more creative way of being. And slowing down is the key. You've, you've brought up the you know, essential the essential piece here in, I think, tied to how to be more creative. Because without slowing down, you don't know, it's hard to make those running assumptions explicit. You don't know how many of them are running and limiting and putting you in a box. Slowing down is the, is the practice to, to, for those to, yeah, literally surface, become, become known to me consciously. Um, and I feel at times like I am the rebelling by slowing down as much as I have I feel like I am doing a radical act in society right now so maybe the invitation for us as we maybe wrap up this conversation is is to you know if if people feel so inspired to find someone that they can slow down with and just practice looking at, at um, where there's assumed safety and where there's assumed risk and what the tolerance is for the unknown, where it is, just to slow down and, and see how those assumptions about safety or uncertainty might be ruling your experience. Yeah, just stay in the question. This has been Naked Conversations, Women Uninterrupted. If our conversation inspired or provoked you, we hope you'll start a meaningful exchange with the people in your life. We're grateful to Kevin McLeod, who generously provided this music, and to artist Tom X, a dear friend of Lisa's, for providing the beautiful painting that graces our show title. Until next time, may we all remember the sometimes miraculous power of real dialogue and practice having kind, curious, and naked conversations.